for their staff for the summer, as well as for uh, the campers that will come. That's always important that God prepares the campers to hear, to listen to the. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, a minute, <clears throat> to listen to the message, and it's also important for to have all the right personnel there, and that all the staff are properly prepared to. Uh, teach the Word, minister the Word, and to be able to <clears throat> help the kids with whatever life situations they need help with. <clears throat> also, a reminder on the church picnic, and, you know, this is a good time to invite some friends. Uh, we always have a few people who come out who are not attenders at West Houston Bible Church. It's always good to uh, use that as an opportunity to just bring some folks along and... and uh, we're not just a Bible class. We're not. It's not a seminary classroom. We like to have fun together and have a good time, and so that's that's uh, that's important. Okay, I think that's all I have for announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord and walking by the Spirit so that we can uh, be spiritually prepared to learn the word, assimilate the word, and then later to apply the word to our thinking and to our lives. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are, again, very grateful that we have you to come to that we have you to uh, flee to in times of difficulty, that you are a pre- ever-present help in time of need. Father, we especially remember some folks who are in need. We pray for Miriam Febreze and uh, the fact that her brother is now face-to-face with you, but that still leaves sorrow in times of grief and mourning. pray that you'd strengthen her and that this would be a good time for her to be a witness to those around her. Father, we also pray for others in the congregation, many represented here, who are facing health health problems as well as health problems in their immediate family. We pray that you would give them wisdom in the decisions they have to make and that you would strengthen them in their illness and that they would be a good testimony to those around them as they face these challenges in life. Father, we're thankful for your grace that is always faithful that no matter how faithless we may be, you are always faithful and true to your word, and you will always love us, and we are secure in that love forever and ever. And, Father, as we continue our study in Samuel this evening, help us to understand these principles, be reminded of your grace and your faithfulness, and that we might uh, in turn understand your workings in history and in our own lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're in First Samuel chapter 12, 1 Samuel chapter 12, and I'm, <clears throat> I didn't quite finish it up last week. I went back and I had to figure out where I ended last week, and I did, and I thought, oh, I sound terrible. I don't know that I sound all that much better uh, tonight, but I think I do. 
at least I did until I stood up here and started kind of hacking and coughing and sniffing, but I'm a lot better. Somebody came. I think a third of the people who came to the Chafer Conference came sick, and they gave it to the to about a third of those who were here. And the other third somehow managed to escape without uh, any injury. But it's amazing how many people I have heard about who went home and within either before they left or within 48 hours were coming down with, with basically the same kind of a cold. So anyway, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 12, and we're working through Samuel's great speech here at Gilgal. And the focus in this one section where we stopped and paused last time, especially coming out of verses 14 and 15, focuses on Israel's rebelliousness. In those verses, they are told positively that they're to fear the Lord, to serve Him, to obey His voice. And negatively, they're told not to rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And then they're warned that if they don't obey, which is parallel to being rebellious, then certain negative consequences are going to take place, and the hand of the Lord will be against them. So I'm taking the time to go back through some of these historical situations that are consistently referred back to. And if you're going to especially understand Hebrews, and if you were here for the conference, um, Dr. Andy Woods had a great paper on uh, Kadesh Barnea and the background to understanding Hebrews chapter 6. John, would you get that door, please? Um, uh, Hebrews chapter 6. And those, uh, and the warning there to believers that not to fall away because that's the pattern that we see is Israel is saved. Most of the wander, the Jews wandering in the wilderness, most of the exodus, the exodus generation are those wandering in the wilderness, and most of the conquest generation were believers. There are many places, and I've gone through this before, where they believed God, they believed God, they believed God over and over again. But there were many times when they didn't believe God, critical times when they didn't believe God, and there were uh, negative consequences. So that's what we're looking at here. Israel is rebellious, and they are faithless, but God is faithful. He is true to his covenant, even though they are false to the covenant. And so once again, here's the map. Uh, Gilgal was located down in the Jordan River Valley between... Jericho and and Jordan somewhere and the River Jordan somewhere close to the River Jordan where Israel had uh, gathered together after crossing the Jordan and they reaffirmed inside the land now they reaffirmed uh, the Mosaic covenant. So we look at these verses in verses 14 and 15 and the positive statement and then the negative statement about rebelling against the hand of the Lord. And at the end of verse 15, we read that last phrase, If you are disobedient, if you rebel, then the hand of the Lord, which is an idiom for his power and his authority, the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. So what happened to the fathers? This is going back many generations. What took place? And so with that phrase, I began to examine the history of God's faithfulness to his covenant and their lack of faithfulness. Now, to understand it, uh, I broke it down into uh, uh, several sections. We have from the crossing of the Red Sea down to Mount Sinai. Then the second section deals with from Mount Sinai 
to Kadesh Barnea. Now, if you look at this map, you'll see a lot of yellow triangles with a black dot in the middle. And those are alternative sites for Mount Sinai. The traditional site is Jebel Musa down here in the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. And most conservative biblical archaeologist scholars believe that's the least likely option. It was likely uh, one of these up in the middle of the um, of the Sinai Peninsula, maybe even as far south as one of these locations here. But you, there are various ways that you can evaluate this because the text tells you how long it took them to travel from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, and we know that they moved at about the rate of a caravan, if that fast, and caravans at that time only went about 10 miles an hour. So you can apply basic mathematical formula to it and discover that they that Sinai has to be within a certain distance, and that uh, comes pretty much excludes uh, Jebel Musa as an option. But anyway, so then we have from from Sinai, where that is, up to Kadesh Barnea. And then their massive failure at Kadesh Barnea, what happens there? And then the last part is from Kadesh Barnea up to the crossing of the Jordan into the land. So the first part, just by way of review, there were um, <clears throat> three things, uh, Merah, Manna, and Manasseh and Meribah. If you can remember that, Merah. Manna and Massa and Meribah, that's it. There was the uh, complaining of the bitter water at Merah, the complaining about the lack of bread. They didn't like their, their diet, and they wanted more meat. Uh, so uh, they lacked bread, they lacked meat, and so the solution was manna in the morning and quail meat in the evening in Exodus 16.23. And then they complained at Rephidim because there was no water, and they called the place Massa, meaning tempted, and Meribah, meaning contention. This was where Moses was told to strike the rock. Similar situation happens later on, also called Meribah uh, for contention, but that's where Moses is going to fail because he's told to speak to the rock instead of strike the rock. And because he disobeys God and he struck the rock there, he was prevented from going into the um, promised land. So that was the first situation. Second, it's Sinai, where we have the operation of the golden calf, where Moses is up on <clears throat> Mount, Mount Sinai, being given the uh, Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. He's up there for uh, 40 days and 40 nights. I don't know how many people got a chance to watch the Ten Commandments the other night on Saturday night. Yeah, we watched part of it. And that's always kind of fun. You think about uh, what happened, I mean, just what that was like in the in the mid-50s when that came out. That was just a tremendous thing. It's, we look at it now, and it's a little over, overacted and hyper-dramatized and things like that. And <clears throat> But it, it communicated. And I remember seeing that when I was a little kid, and that was truly impressive and made you want to go read Exodus and read about uh, what what actually happened. And they kind of conflate some things as they go through there. I'll talk about that in a minute. But they convinced Aaron to build a golden calf, and the people worshipped it, and then 3,000 were uh, dis of those who were disobedient were executed by the Levites. And that happened at Mount Sinai. And this is... Uh, 
This is brought up again in Deuteronomy. So I want to flip around, take you around to a couple of passages in Deuteronomy and Numbers. In Deuteronomy chapter 9 is another rehearsal of these rebellions. Now, one of the reasons I'm going through this, and I went through, in as we went through uh, this section of, of uh, 1 Samuel 12, I noted that the vocabulary is the same vocabulary that we find uh, throughout much of Deuteronomy, to obey, to fear, to serve, and that this vocabulary shows that what what uh, Samuel is doing here is he is presenting a legal case against Israel. He's building a foundation. It's not quite a covenant renewal ceremony. It is a covenant reminder. He is reminding them of what their covenant obligations are and what God promised them, that if they would obey, God would bless them, and if they disobeyed, then God would bring judgment upon them and God would curse them. That's the idea of curse. It's not juju black magic. It is bringing God's judgment upon the people uh, people in time. And so you have passages like uh, in Deuteronomy 9, uh, verses 7 and 8, uh, <clears throat> it's just preceded. Let me look at verse six, where God says, "Therefore understand." Or Moses is speaking. Says, "Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness." In other words, you guys are failures. You're, you're not righteous at all. You've been disobedient again and again and again, and I'm reminding you of all of that. You're not getting the land because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. You're arrogant and you're rebellious. He's not. He did not read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I like Moses' school of leadership. He says, remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. And that's the things that we're going to be talking about, these events. From the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place. Now, they're in the plains of Moab, about to cross the Jordan and enter into uh enter into Israel. And he says, from the day you departed from the land of Egypt till you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. What does Samuel say? He says, don't rebel against God. And then in verse uh, 8 we read, also in Horeb, Horeb is another name for Sinai. Also in Horeb, you provoke the Lord to wrath. That is God's discipline. That's God's judgment in time. Now, all of this is a backdrop. You ought to go home, little assignment, go home and read through Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 because the whole backdrop to Hebrews is the writer of Hebrews is telling his audience, don't be like the Jews in the wilderness because they were disobedient. They sacrificed the entry into the promised land. That was their reward. And because they disobeyed God, they couldn't enter into God's rest, which is entering into the promised land, and therefore they experienced the wrath of God. And that becomes the paradigm for understanding rewards and judgment in the Christian life. So it's true also in the Old Testament, in the spiritual life of Old Testament believers. So he says... He reminds them, also in Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath so that the Lord was angry enough with you to have destroyed you. Now, I'm not going to take you through the rest of chapter 9, but that's what Moses reminded them of, that, that when he came down from Mount Sinai, uh, they were worshiping the golden calf, and that 
that God was so fed up with them that he was ready to destroy all of them and start all over again with just Moses. And he uh, pleaded with the Lord, he interceded for the people, and he uh, convinced the Lord that this was the, the right thing for God's reputation was to uh, continue to be faithful to his covenant. That was a test for Moses to see if he would uh, stand in the gap uh, for for his people. And then if you look down to verse 22, he says, Also at Taberah and Massa and Kibberoth Hata'avah, you provoked the Lord to wrath, likewise when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea. So <clears throat> these are places we are uh, looking at in this brief survey of Israel's rebelliousness. Verse 23, Likewise, when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and possess the land which I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, and you did not believe him nor obey his voice. Now, I want you to notice the contrast there, that because there's a comparison and contrast, rebelling against the commandment of the Lord is what? It is not believing him. There's a correlation between those two. If you don't believe, you don't obey. If you don't believe, you rebel against him. And then the conclusion that Moses has is you've been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. So this is their history. So they have this rebelliousness at Sinai. First of all, there's Operation Golden Calf. And secondly, there's the rebellion of Nadab and Abihu. These are two of the four sons of, of Aaron, and they are disobedient. And uh, Itamar and Eleazar are the two that are uh, obedient uh, to um, to God. And so with this rebellion of Nadab and Abihu, this is where we finished last time, they <coughs> offered strange fire or unauthorized incense. They wanted to approach God on the way they wanted to do it instead of the way that God had decreed that it would be done. This is a trouble with a lot of... A lot of people today, whether they're unbelievers or even believers, they think that they can approach God on the basis of their own terms, their own understanding, and their own uh, criterion. They they say, well, I worship God. I went to church this morning, and we sang these uh, great choruses, and we, oh, we just feel so upbeat because of the beat of the drums and the music, or we cried and we wept because of the way the a worship leader orchestrated and manipulated our emotions so that we feel like we worshiped. But it doesn't have anything to do with biblical truth, and it doesn't have anything to do with walking by the Spirit, and they're not taught anything. That is the, that's the paradigm today is that people do what's right in their own eyes, and especially when it comes to, uh, to, to worship. And Nadab and Abihu were the ones who were doing that, in Moses' generation, so we're going we're gonna to worship God our way, and God said, "Okay," and they died. So God has a quick, quick and efficient punishment for those who are disobedient. And then we're going to talk about what goes on from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. This is Tabor. Tabor is mentioned right there in Deuteronomy 9:22, and it was uh, it's described in Numbers 11. So we're going to be in Numbers 11 for a couple of things. So let's just flip back one book to the left to Numbers chapter 11 and look at a couple of the episodes that took place there. Now, once again, we read that. <clears throat> well-repeated phrase when it comes to the Exodus generation, now the people complained. 
And this is what happened again, and, and that's the backdrop for for what did Paul say in over in Ephesians? Oh, excuse me, Philippians chapter 2. Do all things without murmuring or complaining. What's the, what's the illustration of murmuring and complaining? It's the excess generation. We don't have enough food. We don't like the way the food is seasoned. We don't like the way the food is prepared. We don't like the fact that we have to walk a long distance. We don't like the fact that we come to places and there doesn't seem to be enough water. Uh, everything was something that they complained about. Now, I know nobody here ever does anything like that, so we can move on. Um, but they complained, verse 1. Now, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. You could preach a whole sermon on that. There's a whole doctrine on that. When people complain, it displeases the Lord because complaining is saying, God, I don't like what you've structured into my life right now. Uh, your plan sucks. Uh, that's basically what people are saying. So it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. Now, I've said this for years, but people often think that God is emotional. But these terms for when, for God's anger and God's wrath are not emotional terms. They're actually terms that are used, um, terms that are used that are anthropomorphic. In fact, the phrase that is often quote, that is often used in the Hebrew for God's anger is, literally means his nose burned. You know, somebody gets really mad and their face turns red and their nose turns red. And so the Hebrew idiom was God's nose burned. But God doesn't have a nose. So that's a figure of speech that is called an anthropomorphism ascribing to God a human form that God does not actually possess in order to communicate something about God's plan, purposes, or character. And so it's an anthropomorphism that is expressing an anthropopathism. And an anthropopathism relates to something uh, ascribing an emotion to God that just like his form, it's ascribing uh, an emotion to God that he doesn't actually possess in order to communicate something to somebody. And we often use these terms in our own language. When somebody goes to court and they receive a harsh penalty, we say the judge threw the book at him. Did the judge get angry and throw a tantrum and pick up a a law book and heave it across the courtroom? No, not at all. Uh, In fact, the judge probably was very dispassionate when he expressed the verdict and the penalty. But when we express that in terms of the harshness of the penalty, we will use these kinds of emotive terms that the judge was angry with you. Well, the judge might not have been angry at all. He just was uh, giving the person uh, the most extreme legal penalty possible because of the severity of the crime. So, uh, the people have complained and complained and complained, and so now God is going to uh, operate on his justice because his righteousness has been violated. And so we read, The fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. So apparently where this revolt was taking place was on the fringes of the camp, and somehow God sent this fire 
uh, and it burned some of them, and we're told that they were consumed. They were just incinerated. They were they were uh, uh, consumed right there on the outskirts of the camp. And then we read, the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So Moses stands as their intercessor to plead their case before God, and and then God halted the judgment. And they called the name of the place Taborah, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. And the word Taborah in Hebrew means the place of the burning. So that's pretty much all we know about that, except this is another incident of the people being unfaithful and rebellious toward God and God judging them. And then the story goes on. Now the mixed multitude who were among them, and that's talking about the fact that there were uh, Gentiles, there were Egyptians that came with them on the uh, trip to uh, on, the, on the trip to the Promised Land. Now, of course, in the in the movie, you have. Uh, Moses' mother coming along and all of her Nubian slaves and several other people that were related, and they, they joined the Jews when they left. That's just literary license. We don't know that that actually happened and probably didn't. But and I was talking about his adoptive uh, Egyptian mother, the daughter of Pharaoh. I doubt that the daughter of Pharaoh went went with him. Uh, but we're told that this mixed multitude, that is, uh, Gentiles among the Jews, were among them yielded to intense craving, so that the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? God had put them all on a very healthy diet, and now they are complaining about it. And uh, if any of you have been on a diet, you know that you can get kind of testy at some point, when you don't get to have your comfort food, especially when you get those cravings for sugar or flour or whatever it is you like, ice cream or Magnum bars, or we won't have a personal testimony right here. Okay, so they remember what? The fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlics, and now our whole being is dried up and there's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. So they're tired of it. So this is the second thing that comes along. And... Now, God is going to answer them, and he is really going to let them have it. And this is what's described uh, in, the remember, in the remainder of chapter 18. Uh, the people are called out by Moses, and he says, Tomorrow you're going to eat meat, because God has heard you. That's verse 18. And in verse 19, he says, You shall eat not one day, two days, five days, or ten days, uh, nor twenty days, but for a whole month until it's coming out of your nose. You're going to be throwing it up. You're going to be so sick. You want it. God's going to answer your prayer in an abundance until it makes you sick because he's teaching you to trust him. And so uh, the story goes on and emphasizes uh, how uh, Moses is going to uh, respond to all of this. And in verse 31, we read, A wind went out uh, from the Lord, brought quail from the sea, and it just... The quail died, died all around the camp, uh, stacked up two cubits high and out to um, about a day's journey, which would be about 10 miles surrounding the entire camp. So the people stayed up all night, and they made themselves sick with eating. And this is finally described in verses 33, while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed. The wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. 
Now that doesn't mean a disease. He just he just killed them. They died. So the place was named Kibroth Hataava, also mentioned in Deuteronomy nine, the graves of the greedy, the graves of greediness, because they yielded to their craving. So that's the second example of what happened on the way to Kadesh Barnea. And then, um, this should be number three, the complaining of Miriam and Aaron against the authority of Moses. This, uh, this happened. Uh, Miriam and Aaron began to question the authority of Moses and his leadership, and Miriam was punished by becoming leprous over her whole body. But Moses pleaded with the Lord. Again, we see how Moses is, is, is acting like a type of Christ, a picture of Christ, and constantly standing in the gap as an intercessor for the people. Uh, he, he pleaded with God to heal her, and God healed her, but he said she's going to have a little time out, and she's going to be put out in the desert for seven days by herself to see if she's learned her lesson. As a result of this, though, Miriam would not be allowed to enter into the promised land. Now, that's an an important picture because neither Miriam nor Aaron nor Moses were allowed to enter into the promised land. Were they believers? Yes, they were. Are they going to have eternal life and be justified before God? Certainly they will. However, they missed out on temporal blessing because of disobedience to God. The same thing happens to us, and that's the warning that we find in Hebrews. Not to be like them, because if we are disobedient, then God is, we're not only going to experience divine discipline, but we won't realize the blessings that God would have otherwise given us if we had simply been uh, obedient. And that story is in the next chapter here, um, in Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 12 the rebellion of Aaron and Miriam. So this covers the area from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. And then we come to Kadesh Barnea. And Kadesh Barnea is the significant turning point in the Old Testament. It is at Kadesh Barnea that we see one of the most significant events in Israel's history take place. So here's our map. They've come up from the Sinai Peninsula to Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea is located about 15 miles to the west of um, of Mitzpah Ramon, where last year we went on a trip. We stayed at Mitzpah Ramon, and you have the the huge craters there uh, that that, uh, show that whole area. This is the whole area in the wilderness of Zin, this whole area going across to the uh, Arabah, this area south of the Dead Sea, down to Etzion Geber. And this area is where the Israelites just basically camped out for the next 40 years because God was not going to allow them to go into the land. Now, to understand this, we need to look at Numbers chapter 13. This is another one of those extremely significant passages in the Old Testament. And the Lord gives instructions to Moses, and he said, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan. Now, the focus here is doing a recon mission, not to see if they can take the land, but to see what the land has to offer, so that they can come back and give people a 
very good understanding of what the objective is. They're going to begin with the end in mind. But when they came back, uh, <clears throat> they sent 12, 12 spies, uh, one from each tribe. And when the men came back, 10 of them said, we can't do it. They have walled cities. The people are so numerous, they outnumber us and they will defeat us. And there are giants among those three things, too many people, walled cities, and giants, and we can't defeat them. This is, I've taught this for years, this is one of the classic cases of misinterpretation of God's word. This is what happens when God says to do one thing and you think he said to do something else. If you don't understand what God has said, he didn't say to go into the land and see if they could take it. He said, go spy out the land that I have given you. But that's not what they heard because of their, uh, because of their carnality and their lack of belief and the fact that they're always complaining against God. So when they came back, 10 of them said that, <clears throat> that they were uh, not going to be able to do this. And everybody moaned and everybody groaned and everybody got mad then when Joshua and Caleb said, well, we can take it. We can do it. In fact, they wanted to kill Joshua and Caleb. And that's a, that's a point of application there that anybody who's standing up for the word of God over against a rebellious culture and telling them that they're wrong is putting themselves in the path of destruction. This is what happens to the hardened heart. The person who's rebellious to God will look at you as a believer and say, you are the enemy and define you as the enemy. And we're seeing that in this country. We're seeing more and more that Christians are blamed uh, for for everything. And this is just going to get worse, and it's not going to get any better. And we have to come to understand how to handle that kind of, uh, that kind of opposition. And so Kadesh Barnea becomes the classic paradigm of Israel's disobedience, and it changes the whole destiny of that generation. They will not be allowed to enter into the promised land, and that becomes a paradigm for what happens in the life of a church-age believer if they rebel against God, if they're not obedient to God, that they will stand to lose the inheritance that God has given them. They're not going to lose their salvation, but they risk their inheritance, their rewards uh, for the kingdom. And so just an example of a couple of verses where where this is brought out in Deuteronomy. Uh, Moses said in verse chapter 1, verse 26, Nevertheless, you would not go up. That is, they wouldn't go up into the land. They refused. But you rebelled. What does Samuel say? Don't rebel against God as your fathers did. But they rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And then in verse 43, Moses is going to come back and say, So I spoke to you, yet you would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up. Wait a minute. In verse 26, it says they would not go up. And in verse 43, they went up. Well, what happened in between? Well, what happened in between was that God lowered the boom on them and disciplined them and said, because you wouldn't trust me, you're not going to see the promised land. You're not going to go in. And then they felt all kinds of remorse and they felt upset and they said, okay, we'll do it. We'll trust God. And God said, don't do it. If you do it, you'll be defeated. The Canaanites will destroy you and you will have numerous people killed. 
but they disobeyed God again, and they went up, they rebelled against the command of the Lord, and they went up to attack the Canaanites and were soundly, uh, soundly defeated. And so this is what Moses is referencing here in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 9-7. In Numbers 14, if you're following along, just turn over another page. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, we see the result, the consequences of their disobedience. Verse 29 says, The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who are numbered, according to your entire number, from 20 years and older, everyone 20 years and up, you are going to die in the wilderness. Verse 32, But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. Verse 33, And your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and bear the brunt of your infidelity, so that consequences for sin can go on to the next generation. Not discipline, because God is not going to visit the sins of the father on the sons, but the consequences can be. If Take for a rather simple example. If your parents have a certain amount of wealth, and due to foolishness they squander that wealth, uh, when when it comes time for them to die and for you to inherit, there will not be anything to inherit because they have squandered that wealth. Uh, you're not being punished for their sin, but you are going to reap the consequences for their sin, and this is what uh, is being described at that particular point. So God is <clears throat> provoked to wrath in the wilderness. Now, we go on from Kadesh Barnea, to the Jordan River. As they cross uh, the Arabah, they will go up on the Jordan side through uh, Moab and Edom up until they get to the, um, up to Mount, Mount Nebo. And <clears throat> so the, uh, I've already looked at this. Let me go here, point three. Point three, they get the rebellion of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. Well, isn't that interesting? What just happened, Eddie? We just lost our PowerPoint for those who are listening. Let me stop. Everything looks good. Battery looks good. Let me try again. No, we've lost the... Uh, we're not communicating to the, to the projector at all. Okay, just a minute. All right. Oh, wait a minute. Here's what it is. I moved it and disconnected this. There we go. That should. Okay, there we go. All right, we're back. All right, this is the uh, rebellion of Korah and Dathan and Abiram against Aaron. Okay, now that we had a little commercial break. Uh, if you notice in the Cecil B. DeMille film on the Ten Commandments, Edward G. Robinson plays Dathan, and I don't know who it is who plays Abiram. And they created, this is literary literary license, they create this whole character around Dathan who doesn't show up uh, in the text of Scripture until you get later on into into, uh, uh, Leviticus. And he leads this revolt against the priests, uh, against against, uh, Aaron. And so you have uh, Korah, the sons of Korah, who are also Levitical priests, 
and Dathan and Abiram revolt against Aaron. And initially, Moses says, okay, here's what you're going to do, is you're going to, um, uh, you're going to meet in the morning and come out and uh, build your case against me. And so they come out, and they're going to build their case against him. And, God's, and, and Moses says, listen, everybody back away from them except for uh, Dathan and Abiram and Korah and all their families, and they're going to come out. And God opens up the ground. Now, the special effects in Ten Commandments was pretty good because even though they conflate the events, when when um, Aaron builds the golden calf and Moses comes down from the mountain and he takes the Ten Commandments and throws them and hits the golden calf and it blows up, and then there's an earthquake. Well, the earthquake is a totally separate event many, uh, many years later with this rebellion of Dathan and Abiram. But they put them all together in one event there in the movie. And the earth just splits open and swallows them all up. I mean, that must have been astounding to watch it, to feel that earthquake and the, the, the shock of it and to see it open. And the only people that, that fall into the uh, crevasse are uh, Dathan and Abiram and their families, 250. But then the next day, after people thought about it a little bit, they thought that really wasn't very fair to them. They were such wonderful people, and they just wanted to serve the Lord. And so now there's another massive revolt, and on that second day, 14,700 are killed, and this is described in uh, Numbers chapter 16. So you have God is com- continuously dealing with these with the uh, rebellious Jews, and then the fourth thing that happens uh, is another sign of rebellion uh, to a rebel, Miriam, that she dies outside of the land, and that's just mentioned at the beginning of Numbers chapter uh, chapter twenty. The children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. So she's the first of the three siblings, Miriam, Aaron, and Moses, that dies and is not allowed to enter into the land. So that's that, that's that next judgment, uh, experienced by the rebels in the wilderness, uh, due to the, uh, due to their disobedience to God. And then the fifth event, that occurs that is a significant event is described in Numbers chapter 20. And this is an, <clears throat> a mistake that is made uh, by Moses. The people, again, are contending. That means they're griping and complaining with Moses due to a lack of water. And that's verse 2, after the uh, burial of Miriam. Now, there was no water for the congregation. So they gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and the people contended with Moses. They just continued to complain. Now, remember, you, it takes a lot of water to hydrate a two and a half million people. And if you've ever traveled through the uh, wilderness of Zen, it is barren. Uh-uh. And, and there is just nothing there. And no water and very few trees. And so when God is going to bring water out of a rock, it is a gushing river that comes out in order to have enough water to take care of that many people. 
And so the people are complaining, and again, they, they blame Moses. Why have you made us come out of Egypt? They have no capacity for freedom. They have no capacity for responsibility. Now, the next generation is learning personal responsibility because they are having to do without in the wilderness and having to deal with all of the chores related to taking care of all of the animals and all of the other details, packing and moving and all of those kinds of things. So we're told that Moses and Aaron uh, go to the door of the tabernacle. They go, go to the Lord. They bring the petition to the people. And in verse 8 of chapter 20, Moses is told, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron gather the congregation together and speak to the rock before their eyes. Now, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the rock is the Lord, that, that he is the... So there's this play on words here in, in this passage. They're to speak to the rock and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and to their animals. So now what happens is Moses calls the assembly together, and he gets mad at him. He loses his temper, and he says, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? He lifts up his hand, and he hits the rock twice with the rod that, that God had told him to take. Now, he didn't speak to the rock. That's his act of disobedience. It seems like that's not a big deal, doesn't it? But it is a big deal in terms of God's eyes because uh, there, there have been other instances when Moses hasn't been completely obedient, and this was a significant event. So what happens is uh, he doesn't strike the rock, and so God is gracious, and he provides water anyway. But because of this disobedience, neither Aaron nor Moses will be allowed to enter into the promised land. And so we see in uh, Numbers 20, verse 24, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Now, this is an interesting little thing, because there is a place, and I keep reading about this every now and then, but there's a place not too far from Petra that is the that is a alternate site for Aaron's tomb. And if you're walking out uh, at the upper level of Petra, you can look to the ridge to your left, and you can see that, that some six or 700 years ago, they built a mausoleum on top of, and a monument on top of that ridge that's supposedly the burial spot of Aaron, but it's not. Because if you carefully read... Uh, from the beginning of verse 20, they're in the wilderness of Zin, which is on the west side of the Arabah. They haven't crossed over into Moab yet. So Aaron dies uh, there, and that is where they, uh, where they buried him uh, on Mount Hor, which is on the Israel side, not on the Jordan side, according to uh, a modern, modern map. But then when we get to Numbers 27:14, we're going to read, For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command, that's God talking to Moses, to hallow these waters before their eyes. That is the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. 
So again, that makes it clear that where Aaron died, where Miriam died, are not on the Jordan side, but on the Israeli side. So they are uh, neither Moses nor Aaron are allowed to cross into the land. Now, sixth event that occurs is that the people spoke against the Lord, saying that God brought them into the wilderness to die. This is described in Numbers twenty, um, Numbers twenty-one, verses one through seven, and this is the incident with the bronze serpent. And so we're told there that they had journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Well, let me go back and find that map again and put this up. This is on almost slide 32. Okay, here's where we are. They have gone through the wilderness of Zen here, this whole area in the uh, in the Negev down here, and they have... Uh, they cross over down, really, down here toward uh, Etzion Geber, and then they're going to come back up this way uh, toward toward Petra. So uh, at this point, somewhere over in, as they're crossing around Edom, somewhere in this area is where they have the incident with the fiery serpents. Now what happens is the people are complaining about uh, against God, uh, once again, complaining about food and no water, and our soul loathes the worthless bread, otherwise known as the bread of angels. They're having a little problem with that. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. So this is some sort of highly venomous uh, serpent whose whose wound, the poison, would cause a fiery pain. I believe that they, they, they weren't the serpents weren't on fire, but they're called fiery serpents because of the pain that the type of pain that came from being bitten, and the people would die. The people went to Moses. They confessed their sin. Notice we have sinned in verse seven, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed. For the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, take a depiction of this serpent, bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. Now, this is remarkable. There's so much debate that has occurred within the so called free grace camp about what is necessary in order to be saved and how much you need to know and whether or not you need to understand all the different facets of the person and work of Christ and how far far it goes. And it's really simple because in John chapter 3, I believe when Jesus is still talking in verse 15, the verse that precedes John 3:16, there is a reference back to this event. And this is the picture of belief. It is to look to the cross. It is to look at what Jesus did and to trust in that. You know, they didn't have to understand how this would work how they would be healed by looking at this bronze serpent, this image. All they needed to do was say, that's what God said to do, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to trust what God said and do it. It's trust and obey. So they believed uh, Moses. They looked at everyone who looked at the image, uh, lived. And that's the solution. So that becomes a classic example for understanding uh, faith in the Old Testament. All right, now I'm going to go back to the, my previous slide. 
Okay, here we go to back. That was around slide 32. And then the next event that occurs, which is described a little bit later in the next few chapters, and from Numbers chapter 23 through Numbers chapter 25, we have the episode with Balaam. And the problem with Balaam is he can't curse Israel, but at the end of his attempts to curse Israel, what he does is he tells Balak how he can subvert the Israelites. You want to subvert them? Just take all your women functioning as temple prostitutes and fertility rites and get them to marry off uh, to the Jewish men and entice them to come into the uh, to get involved with them in the fertility worship and, and having orgies with them. And the result of this is it will destroy the nation Israel. They will just, uh, they will become enticed by sexual sin. That will become the dominant motive in the culture and it will destroy the culture. And the result was that, uh, God told them to, told the, uh, the priest once again, to kill all of those who had joined with this Baal worship at Baal at Paor, and all the offenders were to be hung, and a total of 25,000 were killed, 24,000 in one day, and then a 1,000 later the next day. Remember, we studied this about uh, a month or so ago as, as one of those passages where there's uh, people say, well, there's a contradiction in the Bible. You look at Acts, and Paul said 25,000, uh, 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 24,000 were killed in one day, and uh, yet in Numbers it says 25,000 were killed. And but the issue is that 24,000 are killed one day, and 1,000 are killed the, the, the other day. So it's, it's an easy explanation. There's not a contradiction. And so what we see as we go through this is that Numbers 30, I mean Deuteronomy 31, in Moses' last statement to them, he says, you've been rebellious against the Lord this whole time. That's what Samuel's going back to, is the, the sins of the fathers. It's not talking about the cycles of discipline, the period of the judges. It's talking about that Exodus generation and their sins. So this is a description of what it means that the hand of the Lord is against them. And there are various places, and I don't need to go through all these verses, but I'll give you the references uh, Exodus 9.3, Joshua 4.24, uh, Deuteronomy 2.15, uh, Judges 2.15. These are all places where you have this phrase, the hand of the Lord, and it's simply a metaphor for God's omnipotence. And it's usually used in a, in a context of divine discipline and judgment. Now, to wrap up our study in uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 12, Let's go on to the next verse. So this is the command that Samuel issues to the people. Now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. We're going to see a miracle here. I have given you God's perspective on what's happening. I have stood here as a, as a, as, as an attorney representing God. I am the attorney general for, the, for God's kingdom and I am challenging you with what uh, your uh, your responsibilities are in the uh, under the Mosaic law, under the Mosaic covenant, and to give evidence that this is what will take place. Something is going to happen. He says, "Isn't today the wheat harvest?" So this is in May June. I'm taking a lot of tour groups to Israel in May June. 
I've never seen it rain in May or June, not once. So <clears throat> it's the time of the wheat harvest, and the uh, and Moses. I mean, Samuel says, "I will call to the Lord, and He will send thunder and rain, that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourselves." So this is not a judgment. Some people will say, well, God is going to judge them, and he brings this uh, storm, and it destroys the wheat crop. That's not the point. The point is it's going to be a miraculous meteorological event that is going to uh, give evidence that to validate what Samuel has just said. So Samuel called to the Lord. The Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people feared the Lord and Samuel. So immediately they realized they have, they have sinned, and now they are going to reap the consequences. So in verse 19, what happens when all of a sudden we are become aware that God's going to bring discipline in our life because we've been sinning? Well, first thing we do or should do is to confess. So that's what they do. All the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. So they are confessing their sin. Now, Samuel's response in verse 20 is to say, do not fear. You have done all this wickedness. You've admitted to it. You've sinned again and again and again. But don't turn aside from following the Lord. And that's this Hebrew word sur, which means to depart or defect. Uh, we might even translate it apostatize. Don't apostatize from the Lord. But do what? But serve the Lord with all your heart. Serving the Lord, doesn't that sound familiar with what we've been learning in Matthew? This is the issue, is we are called to serve the Lord. And then he says in verse 21, do not turn aside, don't defect. For then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver. Idols of wood and stone and metal, these are empty things. They are tohu. If you study Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void. It was empty and void tohu. Uh, tohu vabohu. Uh, this is just the word tohu. It's, it's that these, these idols are emptiness. They're, 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 there's nothing there. And then the promise, God, the Lord, will not forsake his people. See, no matter how we mess up in life, no matter how disobedient we are, no matter how rebellious we are, no matter how bad we've been, God's grace does, ne- does not abandon us. We may forsake him and defect, but he never forsakes us. He never defects. And this is Samuel's message of comfort. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, for his character's sake, for his reputation. He will, he will always be true to his word. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, he says, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. He's going to continue to pray for them. He's going to continue to intercede for them and stand in the gap, fulfilling his role as a prophet and a priest. He says, but I will teach you the good and the right way. That was his responsibility as a, as a Levitical priest. And what's his concluding remark? Verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth. Now, serving the Lord is a synonym for worship. What did Jesus tell the woman at the well? A time will come when we will worship God by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. 
what's added by means of the Spirit. The Old Testament, Samuel says, we are to serve him by means of truth. That standard for worship has always been the same. But then the final warning, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And when he says king, you can hear the uh, the, ba- the bass notes start to play because in the next chapter, we're going to see a great sin on the part of Saul that will be the reason that the kingdom is taken from him because he acts wickedly toward God. Gaul goes back to Deuteronomy 27.10. You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. If not, God is going to bring judgment. That is Samuel's message. So next time we'll get into uh, 1 Samuel 13 and 14, which is a great episode, tremendous battle, and we're going to see the first rock climber in the Bible. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to come to understand the importance of obeying you, fearing you, serving you. And, Father, that many times we disobey you, and that is rebelliousness, but we, are, uh, we have our sins uh, paid for at the cross, and we confess them, and we're able to recover and move forward. And we pray that we might continue to walk by the Spirit, focused on the end game uh, of serving you as true disciples of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.